The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today, we bring you DJ Butler's interview with Tom Kratman about Kratman's latest novel, Dirty Water. Let's take a listen. Uh, welcome, uh, viewers and listeners of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. This is DJ Dave Butler, and I'm here this week with Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman to talk about uh, his new novel, uh, Dirty Water, released this week in hardback, um, and also uh, in all your favorite ebook uh, formats, wherever books and ebooks are sold. The, the ebooks, of course, uh, being DRM free whenever you buy them uh, at bain.com. Uh, as always. Um, uh, Tom's got extensive military service, uh, uh, much more than I than, than than we have time for me to, to, to go through actually, uh, but in, including uh, uh, service in Panama, Georgia, uh, Germany, multiple places in the Middle East, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait. Um, He's uh, commanded uh, multiple companies, three companies and a battalion. Uh, and we're happy to have him as a uh, Bane writer. He's uh, Dirty Water is his 18th novel by our count. We may have missed one, but we're going, going through uh, 18th novel, uh, most of which we're, we're uh, uh, lucky to have uh, uh, at Bane, um, uh, as well as a, a couple of anthologies. Uh, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm lucky because I get to read these books before anyone else does. And so I uh, got to enjoy Dirty Water uh, pretty early. Um, uh, I, I'm curious. Um, well, uh, I, I'm curious what the impetus is. Like for, for at what point did you decide you wanted to write this book or or what what moved you to write this story? This is I should say this is maybe a, this is a. Um, I don't know if it's a series. That's an interesting question, but it's at least the first book of the series or maybe a standalone novel. Might be a series. We'll see. Yeah. Um, what, what prompted me to do it? Well, there's a great deal of, of truth in, in the novel. There's a great deal of personal background and, and truth. For example, yes, Whitey Bulger once patted me on my little head while hitting on my mother. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, Yeah, there was a, a a bookie joint where I worked when I was a kid. I didn't do any booking except one little mistake, but um, but the core of the thing is is the the toy store was real. Slocum's toy store was real, and there it was widely believed among us that there was some kind of a a warp in space and time that allowed him to store as many toys as he did. And oh, so, you know, I went with that. What what motivated me to write it? Well, Boston used to be a great place and a great place for Christmas. I wouldn't know how it is now. I don't go back for Christmas, really. No. But um, I wanted my grandkids to see it. Yeah. And uh, the only way to get my grandkids to see it was to write it and bring them back to it. Yeah. That's so that's so fantastic. Um Let's let's get out some of the basics of the book uh, as background to that. So the 
the um, I didn't even mention in the introduction your legal career. You're you're you are not to be consulted for legal advice now, but but um, uh, uh, along with with uh, service in the military, you were a member of the Virginia Bar, right? Right, right. I'm and, still licensed to practice in front of the tax court, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm I'm in a very similar uh, position. I tell people you really shouldn't ask me for legal advice. You should get someone who's current and really doing this now. Yeah. Um, it's a horrible job, isn't it? Yeah, it it is a horrible job. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that when I went to law school. Law school was okay. Being a lawyer was just crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, no, I went to law school as a, as a punt because people said, oh, you can do anything with a law degree. And, um, uh, and, and then, and in, in fact, I have done many different things other than being a lawyer. Um, so, uh, but your character, this is the point, right? So your, your, your character is a, is a, a grandfather and, uh, is a, is a, is a lawyer in Virginia. And who grew up in Boston? Um, and no parallels there whatsoever. Right? No parallels there, right? We, like uh, maybe sometime, maybe sometimes a little bit of the writer slips in, right? A, a, a little bit. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in this. In and you say you wanted your kids to see it. This is this is a, in a sense what sets off the story is is the 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 protagonist has time uh, is I think it's his his daughter and son in law right are busy. Uh, for the summer and need help watching the kids. Uh, it's not that they need help. It's just that he he is undertaking the kids cultural yeah. historical education. Yeah. And um, uh, so he takes them up to Boston to keep them in touch with their roots. Yeah. And this is how it opens is 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 this kind of fun scenes of uh, um, of the character tell, telling his grandkids, you know, what this was, uh, you know, what this was like then. Uh, and this very magical view uh, there. Uh, y- yes, there are stories about the Irish mob. Right. And uh, <laughs> but also the stories of like sort of being a kid and the wonder of, of being in a huge, well-stocked department store, you know, does except maybe for Macy's in yeah. New York, doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, it's all gone. Right. Amazon is not the same thing. Well, the malls killed it first. Amazon then did in the malls. Right. Um and a lot of bad business decisions, I think, kill the large department stores. As near as I can tell, the, the, the quickest route to economic suicide for business is to buy a competitor. Yeah. You know, and they all, well, they don't all do it. Some of them die for other reasons, but all the ones who do do it, except for Macy's, seems to die. And by the way, do you ever notice a different, the, the similarity between the Krill and Macy's? Uh, that's interesting. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, when they're just little pups, they, you know, little tadpoles, they eat each other. And they, you know, one grows until there's just one left. Yeah. Um, yeah, Macy's was a little bit in the back of my mind uh, as, as I wrote about the krill. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. And the title, Dirty Water, that's from a song lyric, yeah? Down by the river... Down by the banks of the river, Charles. Yep. That that's fine. And there's it's it's uh, uh, there's another so there's another element right like uh, that that contributes to kind of the sense of um, it's not exactly nostalgia. Maybe it's nostalgia, but like 
like it's it's the characters sharing this dimension uh of the world with the kids that, that they wouldn't see otherwise right like music is a piece of that where music is about, um yeah riding on a train that's really nice oh yeah part of it um and it, there's a contrast there though you know the boston subway where you know he slips his hand into a pocket to put his fingers around his pistol and his back to a wall yeah uh, um, and then the train to Chicago, the train to New York, yep. which are you know very different sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so the story, so the the, the, op the opening of the story, right, or the, at least the with the with the protagonist and stuff, it's this story around the kids. Um, until we get to, as you say, the 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 space time portal, the the wrinkle in space. Um, and uh, so, so tell us about that. What turn? What really turns this into a science fiction novel? Um, the existence of aliens, one of which is what two of which actually, although we don't know that at the time, yeah. are walking among us um, yeah. with evil in their hearts. Um, time travel. Yep. An entirely different galactic civilization of which we only get a glimpse um, yep. through one of their law enforcement agencies. Uh, that's probably, probably enough. Feels like a pretty good start. Yeah. Uh, we, we also have some experimental uh, firearms manufacturing, right? He, he the protagonist goes and manufactures a, kind of a vest uh well it's the the, the air canister hangs on the on his uh yeah it's armor the harness but yeah. it's like a, it's like a it's a pneumatic submachine gun basically yeah um which is doable yeah. there really are pneumatic fully automatic weapons and i don't mean little bb thingies or right. things. i mean <laughs> yeah they exist um this is unusual in having a large capacity magazine and, you know, the ability to fire a whole bunch, really. Yeah. But there's nothing at Vermont Custom Armory existed. It still kind of exists. Um, but their, uh, their, their pneumatic arms part of it is, is in abeyance for now. Okay. Uh, they should okay. get back to it in time. And then yeah. they be a sterling pneumatic submachine gun. <laughs> okay. That's that's excellent. Um, so, uh, well, let's start with let's start with the aliens. So we, we have a galactic civilization um, and we have uh, uh, interspersed with the, the story of our protagonist and his grandkids. We have um, maybe a cat and mouse game, if you will, between uh, some aliens that are that are on our planet. Right. We see them actually uh, a few hundred years in the past uh, before we see them in the present. Well, we see a, a married couple and their self-mobile human-looking AI. Yeah. Uh, it's trying to hunt down the extremely dangerous alien. We see that. Um, and we see them on another planet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, I'll, ultimately they fail yeah. to get the alien. They're supposed to terminate it with extreme prejudice and... Instead, the alien terminates one of them and has the other one shipped off as an indentured servant. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so we get that story, and uh, in fact, I think it's the opening scene, isn't it? Uh, is is like at the? Uh, am I right to remember this? It's sort of the set in the Salem witch trials, and and the uh, the aliens are there interacting with that process. What? What? Yeah, they they are. They frame uh, one of the um, the woman who was sent to be an indentured servant. They they frame her for witchcraft, and she's yeah. hanged. Yeah. And yes, as a matter of fact, uh, Goody Glover um, was hanged on Bo not on Boston Common. It's I explained it in the book, but in fact, it was on the other side of the wall across Boston Neck where they had the gallows. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's fun because you're as part of this kind of like love letter to Boston and its history. You actually the story actually goes back further than than your protagonist's youth, right? Like actually, we we connect with uh, with older parts of Boston than that. Um, much older. <laughs> yeah, much older. Um, so how does the so okay so how does our protagonist get into time travel then? What where does that come in? Oh, um, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but he's showing the kids. Remember, he's getting the kids in, in our time. He's getting the kids yep. in touch with their roots. Yep. And, he, and his back is killing him because he drove up, you know, a, a 13, 14 hour drive, 15 hour drive with piss holes um, to Boston. And his, his back's just a crap show when he goes to Slocum's. And it's a massage salon, not a massage parlor. OK, yep. it's a massage salon. It's like. You know, and it is, by the way, a massage salon. That's what it is now. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I thought that it was some kind of a gift store, but then I started digging in. You know, and my back was hurting me at the time. By the way, I started digging. Oh my god, it's a massage salon with a massage therapist on staff. Yeah. So he goes in to get a massage, leaves the, the grandkids in the waiting. Two of the grandkids in the waiting room, and they're girls. And I, I hinted a couple of times uh, that. Females are different. They're in touch with a different reality. Hmm. And no one's going to give, I mean, no one's going to convince me that this is not true. Women understand things that they have no reason to understand and know things they have no reason to know. Right. And it starts very young. Yeah. So uh, my wife is, is an amazing example of this, actually. Um, so the kids are sitting there and their, their waiting room is in the part of Slocum's toy store that old man Slocum never let anybody in. And that's true. He never did. You'd try to go in there and you'd find he was blocking you before you get one foot into that half of the store. And um, they see it. They, they see the portal. Oh. And the little one who's very adventurous and afraid of nothing but stinging insects touches it and her hand goes in. And then against the advice of her cautious older sister, she goes in and she sees a vestibule, a very strange vestibule. Yeah. And she sees old man Slocum, who, by the way, died a long time ago, yeah. uh, pulling toys, basically, out of the vestibule. Yeah. And that's how he kept so many toys. Why He always had the toy anybody wanted, with one exception. I never did get my big Caesar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so... He sees her and tells her she doesn't belong there and to go back. And then she goes back. But, you know, and the old man, after a little bit of a demonstration, the old man takes them back, shows them a picture of Slocum uh, on the computer. And that 
picture can be found on originally from Southend on Facebook. Huh. Yep. And she recognizes that that's him. And so then they start planning. And they know when that he was there from the toys that he grabbed. A G.I. Joe and a Chatty Cathy frame it nicely between 1964 and 1966. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. It's got a little bit. I wouldn't want to push this too hard, but just in that kind of uh, that portal feels almost a little uh, it's a little kind of a Narnia moment. You know, there like there's some there's there's a little bit of wonder to it that it's a that it's a toy store of all things. Um, well, I, actually, Tony Weisskopf said I was going to use a toy store anyway. Yeah. But Tony Weisskopf suggested exactly why it should be a toy store. What the was Krill, the Krill would want to set up a portal where it can where children will someday gather because uh, it eats children among other things yeah okay okay <laughs> so a toy store <laughs> yeah that's interesting i like that um so uh and it also gives you the sort of way that the toys does give you a cool way to go hey it's got to be uh you know within a couple of years i know when uh the portal opens yeah, GI Joe and Cat Chatty Cathy set the set the frame. Yeah, when do they overlap? Um, uh, very cool. So, uh, so okay. So uh, this is sort of the you know this is the this is this sets everything in motion, right? Like, okay, I've got to I've got to react and have a plan to this. So, so what does your protagonist decide to do, and how does he uh, how does he get prepared for it? Oh. Um... Well, he buys a laptop for each of the kids and he puts them to, he gives them each assignments to track things down. Clothing, money, he takes care of armaments. Um, fake, I well, not fake IDs, but um, people who died at the right time frame at about the right ages. ages. He puts one of yeah. them to work on finding yeah. that. Um he uh, assembles his arms. He drills them on getting out of the car and to a covered position by the toy store, by the alley that leads to the back of the toy store. Uh, yeah. he, um, he has them learn to pick locks, but yeah. the only one who gets really good at it is his grandson. He's very sarcastic. Yeah. Because um, he got to break in, you know. Yeah. yeah, but we're not going to commit a felony in there, so it's not really a crime. We're just going to break in and go through it, you know. <laughs> just breaking and entering is not burglary there's no crime well i didn't say it was no crime <laughs> <laughs> so it's a small crime it's, yeah, it's uh, a much lesser crime it's not a, a, an inhabited dwelling place you know not quite dwelling place yeah um, although it is at night <laughs> So, uh, so that's fun, right? So, so uh, uh, he's going to take them back with him to go see this sort of, uh, you know, the land of his youth he's been describing, right? Right. Um, and my memory is one of the pieces of research, one of the kids is also looking at, isn't one of them looking at stock market data historically? Oh, he uh, does that himself. Oh, he does that himself. He does yeah. that stock. Well, not just stock market. Stock market futures... The number, yeah, uh, paramutual number, horse races, <laughs> dog races, and he right. puts he has all that data on his own laptop that's going with them, right? Um, because he intends to make a great deal of money back then, yeah. And uh, 
you know, I, I in this particular case, his thought processes of mine, he comes to the conclusion that the only place to put that money is with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Because that's the only place it isn't paying dividends. So he doesn't have to worry about, I think they did once actually in, in their history. So he doesn't have to worry about being there to collect dividends. Warren right. Buffett's not going to listen to anybody. So he doesn't have to worry about being there at stockholders meetings. Yep. Um, he can just sit there without him having to leave detailed instructions that are an arrow pointing straight at someone traveling time. Yeah. Right? He leaves it with Warren Buffett who makes an appearance. Um, and uh, lets the money ride. Yeah, he's, he's going to come out of it as a, a, a relatively high end among billionaire billionaires billionaire. Yeah, all right, and um, he wants to afford his own army because he thinks society is falling apart. Yeah, and the only, and the only way to secure himself and and his his children and his grandchildren is to have his own military force. Yeah. In well, this is secure, securing the things for his his grandchildren is like a is like a very nice way to look at this, right? I mean, he's, this is, uh, hey, here's an opportunity to to take care of the family in like a in a dramatic way, right? Significant, anyway. Hopefully, yeah. it won't be dramatic. Right. Uh, but something he didn't know when he went in there, and he didn't think about at the time, he's effectively immortal now. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. never stressed it, but he is effectively immortal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's come right back to that because he he does undergo some change. Um, am I right? To, I think one of the things they do is they go around. I thought this one was very clever, kind of thinking through the logistics of the of the problem. They go around in in, in present day and they take it's a month or two or something to kind of prep. Right? It's a, it's a few weeks. It's at least a few weeks. I, I don't think I said exactly, but it's a few weeks. Yeah. They go around and they collect um, in present day, like 19, like money, right? Like I need to go get some bills that are, that has to be at least before 1964, whatever the date is, right? Like I can't, because I can't go right. back there and spend a 1992 or a 2010. Right. And Sam's, uh, Sam's coins, yeah. Sam's real, Sam's coins is real. And if you need cash that, you know, is 50 years old, go to see Sam. Yeah. That's awesome. So you, you see him sort of cashing out his his liquid resources now to go to this old coin and money collector to buy a bunch of old money, right? Right. He puts them to work actually collecting the old money, right? Uh, and he, I think he gets fifty thousand for seventy thousand current. Yeah, there's a little premium on that, but that's okay because his fifty thousand is worth four hundred thousand in terms of purchasing power. And he's going to invest it in things, right? So they can go in the first instance sort of make some quick money by investing at the races, right? Well, he wants the races, but he settles for the paramutuals. Yeah. Because there's a record of races and he doesn't want there to be a record. He doesn't want a record of his bets. That's right. Uh, and then at some point, the, the plan is later on, okay, we'll just put it in this investment that can be basically totally passive and then, you know, come back to present day and that $50,000, 1964 money is a fortune. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's, I'm not sure. I think I figured out he's worth about 11 or 12 billion. Yeah, yeah. He comes back. And that's not counting the arms purchases he made while he was back there. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, and in this preparation, this is where he has the, now, now what's the thinking 
uh, why does he why does he have this custom made uh, pneumatic? I mean, other than the fun of it, maybe part of the answer is I thought it was a fun idea. But like, but what's the logic between having this uh, air powered submachine gun made? Um, doesn't need ammunition. It is very quiet. I mean, he, he doesn't need purchased ammunition. He can make slugs himself. Yeah. It's very, very quiet. Um, and it he doesn't have time to go through the process of he could he could go buy a um a submachine gun and bring it back to him. But that would yeah. take months to get ATF approval. And he doesn't want to yeah. wait months. Yeah. Right. And these the uh, you know, Vermont Custom Armory is they probably could make him a submachine gun, but that would be illegal, and they don't do that. Uh, yep. So they do what is legal. Yeah. The, the answer is because it's legal to do so. Yeah. And and there is a little bit of a conversation between him and the Vermont Armory guys, where they're like, wait, is this illegal? And then uh, and he and he walks them through uh, yeah, why, why, they can, why they can and want to do it for him. Right. They owe him the sides, but I didn't stress that. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so he comes back, uh, um, and, and let's see. So he's, he's, my memory is he goes through, uh, earlier, they tell him about the portal and he, does he go through once himself experimentally? I can't remember, uh, or he, he just, he doesn't he go looks. through experimentally, but he looks yeah. and then he comes back. Um, cause there's, there's maybe a bit of question. We know a, a little because when, females are weird and different. We know that a girl can go through and come back, but right. he doesn't know that he can go through and come back. Right until um, until he experiments a bit, yeah. and the experiment itself is kind of risky. So yeah, so uh, uh, they've trained for this operation, right? So the uh, this, the the grandsons become a good lock pick uh and uh and uh you know they 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 have a plan and and backups and and basically at night they go slip into the toys well into the massage uh salon uh and then not parlor not parlor not parlor yeah massage salon and let themselves out into the toy store right yeah. um <laughs> And uh, and there are some there's some surprises uh, right in, in particular there's a, a our protagonist arrives kind of transformed. Well, he he I, I don't spoilers. Um, everything hurts. He you know he he lived a pretty hard life and everything's worn out and everything hurts. And he is he says I believe out loud softly but but aloud. As he's starting to pass through, I wish I was 40 years younger. And the same mechanism that creates toys for the toy store zaps him in the back, knocks him silly. And when he comes to, he's choking because <laughs> there's no room in his mouth for his dentures and his real teeth, which have grown back. <laughs> um, and he sits up and is like, that's supposed to hurt. What's wrong? Why doesn't that hurt? It always hurts. Um, and the kids are like, Grandpa. You've changed. Yeah. Um, and then he sta he's changed a lot, so much so that when he stands up, he can't tighten his belt enough to hold his pants up. Yep. And he's not uh, stupid. He doesn't know how long it's going to last. The dentures go in his pocket, but... Um, just in case. Yeah. 
So uh, fun. So the so the plan is uh, get rich, right? We have in, we have inside information. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna. If it's good uh, enough for the United States Congress. It's good enough for my character. Well, and it isn't it isn't uh, insider training in like a. a like a like a securities law sense right i mean no, right. no a legal legally cognizable sense right right there's no there's no there's no law against being from the future and knowing stuff right right as it happens uh so uh um that's the plan he's armed you know because life is rough um and it, and it turns out they they uh they have some you know they have adventures and, and obstacles and I, uh, do you want to you want to kind of highlight some of the sort of uh, without maybe going too much into it but what you know what kinds of uh what kinds of adventures with does a guy time traveling with his grandkids get into uh back in the 60s in Boston rescuing one of them from mobsters who've kidnapped her um Dealing with a cat who can type, um, and eliminating a not terribly bright but still extremely capable alien who is more or less a crack whore. Yeah, I I, I was probably eighty percent done with writing the book when I realized this isn't just any alien. The krill is a crack whore. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so this is this is where his path intersects the the aliens from uh, uh, from the beginning of the book, right? From 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 sixteen right. uh, what is it sixteen thirties, whatever the date is, uh, Boston. I don't remember when. I, I don't have a copy of it with me, but yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it's uh, I can figure out. Hold up, Go Goody Glover. Let me find Goody Glover. I'll tell you. <laughs> But he ends up having to do the job that the, the husband and wife krill hunter team couldn't. Uh, right. Well, but he has help. You know, I mean, he he's not alone in this. Yeah. Um, and Goody Glover was hanged on November sixteenth, sixteen eighty-eight. Oh, much later than yeah, okay, late later in the seventeenth century. Yep. Um, I should have known that, right? Plymouth Rock is sixteen twenty. That's way too early to immediately have the uh witch trials um so uh yeah so he ends up in the showdown with the and again it's not his plan he's not there to hunt aliens he's there to try and and and, and build a, a very large nest egg for his family but but once uh, it's explained to him that the alien is perfectly capable of fomenting a nuclear war yeah then he has to take care of the alien and he, takes he can't even send his up. grandkids into the future for their own safety because they won't be safe in the future they're right. safer with him guarding them than they're going to be anywhere else. Yeah, it's it's like having discovered a copperhead in the wood pile. You, you have to kill the snake because mm -hmm. uh, it's a threat there. As as, as long as it's a threat, as long as it's there, um, uh, which is which is fun. It's this kind of um, uh, hunt uh, around the city. There's a lot of sort of. Um, you know, it's it's action scenes. You got you got gunfights and kind of uh, action scenes with this with the krill, uh, but also it's a lot of sort of inductive reasoning and sort of uh, detective like, you know, trying to figure out, you know, hey, based based on this data, 
we can triangulate and we can and we can try and lure it out. And, um, but the krill is hunting him at the same time he's hunting it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so that's a lot of fun. Comes to a very good, satisfying ending. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, a great uh, standalone uh, novel. It's pretty romantic, actually, in some ways. I have to say, you know, this is a this is a character who. Um, believes in love and love is important to him of, of lots of, lots of like family love, but also romantic love, you know? Um, and I'm uh, kind of proud of the scene where Francesca stood up, dropped yeah. off her bathrobe and said, your Christmas present is me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you should be. It's a, it's a, it's a good story. I like, I like the romantic plot and it's got a, um, you know the character's a he's a principal he's a principal guy he believes in love and but also commitment right like he's uh, and it's a it's a good read well and not ruining anyone else's life which is you know a fair amount of what he's trying not to do yeah yeah absolutely so uh, so I'm interested in in the possibility this might have a sequel if you do you have thoughts about that is that something you talked about with Tony already um, or where where we might, might it have been, we might have inferentially discussed it. I set it up for there to be a sequel. Oh, uh, at the very end, yeah. When he's uh, he's talking, to, Juliana mentions that they can save Topaz's husband. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay, that's right. That's a uh, okay automatic so, sequel if we want to do it. Yeah, big big uh, big opportunity for that there. Uh, there were I two things. Yeah, th there were two things in there that Tony made me cut out, um, which I think will show up again in a later volume if I do it. Okay. There were two people killed in Boston, not that far apart. One was a, a poor black kid named George Pratt. Mm -hmm. The other one was uh, a Swiss hippie chick named Evelyn Wegler. Wegler. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of assholes in South Boston just shot George Pratt for no freaking reason. I think he was 16 or 17. Yeah. And uh, they were white, the ones who did it. Um, and we pretty much know who did it. They, they couldn't get a conviction. Yeah. Um, and Evelyn Wegler had run out of gas and was carrying a can of gas back to her car. And she got stopped by six black kids, teenagers, yeah. who uh, made her douse herself with gasoline and beat her up some and then torched her off. Oh, man. So the two scenes Tony made me cut out, and I'll use them again in the future, was he's there on the spot when someone is aiming at George Pratt and he kills both of them. Yeah. And then he's there when the six kids grab Evelyn Wegler and he kills all six of them. Yeah. But that'll be for the future. Because, you know, I mean, it's it, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fantastic. Um, well, what is there that you'd like to say about the book that, that we that we haven't touched on, Tom? Um, is one thing is normally I hate reading my own writing because mm. I'm sick of it by the time of you know, but I can read that. It's it's a fun book, pretty easily written. Um, Suitable for pretty much all, almost all ages, you know, 12 and up, I think. Yeah. Maybe nine if they're precocious. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of a fun ride and yeah. a nostalgic ride. 
and it's it's more than one love letter. Yes, it's it's a love letter to Boston, mm-hmm. but it's also a love letter to grandchildren. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I think people will enjoy it. I think it's also a love letter to romantic love and to being married. By the way, I think that's there's also like a. a there's there's a note of that there. Uh, well, he does have a sort of a moral problem. His wife is dead. Yeah. Um, but when he goes back in time, she's not dead. Right. But when he goes back in time, she's only four years old. Right. This and this, this is a, right. This is a dilemma for him, but also it matters, right? Like he, it's he's, he's not casual about it. Uh, yeah, he's, he's not casual. He. he 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 went through the sexual revolution and decided it was a big mistake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and he's fortunate to find a girl back there who has not entered. She's Italian, very Catholic, and she has not been in the sexual revolution. Right. Yep. Well, th- I agree. This is a very. It was uh, above all. I say. I would say it's a. It's a fun read. And and there's a wonderful sense of um, uh, on on a couple different levels. Uh, I tell my kids like to to me the interesting thing about getting older is not oh my elbow hurts or whatever. It's that I as I I see places with a time dimension. Like in I go to a place and I remember when this was a field and then it was a fire station and like now it's a restaurant right. Um, and the book does a real wonderful job of conveying that and kind of, you know, the, 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 the memory of, um, of, of things lost and being able to find them again. And seeing Boston before they put up that architectural atrocity that is city hall. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, fantastic. Well, uh, Tom, thank you very much for, uh, uh, being on the podcast today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, again, the book is Dirty Water, and it's out uh, out now in hardback uh, and uh, and e-back wherever uh, e-book wherever hardbacks and and e-books are sold. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Win Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 5 Variable Substitutions Tinker's grandfather had often told her that moving Pittsburgh to Elfhome raised the intelligence of human bureaucrats. He commonly cited the Housing Act as proof. People fleeing Elfhome registered their property with the EIA in return for displacement vouchers. 
The United Nations redeemed the vouchers for a house of equal value, prior to the gate, of course, anywhere on earth, doling out the Chinese compensation money to those most affected by the gate. The EIA resold the Pittsburgh real estate for a dollar to anyone who pledged to make the home his or her permanent primary residence. The system encouraged squatters to maintain property that would otherwise stand empty. Housing, which had always been affordable and easy to find in Pittsburgh, became basically free. Her grandfather, Oil Can, and she had lived in an old hotel looking out over the river on Neville Island. It was a four-story palace bought for a dollar. The locks and dams that controlled the Allegheny, Monongahela, and the Ohio rivers, however, stayed mostly on earth. Every spring, the muddy river water would creep up the steep bank and swirl into the hotels downstairs. The basement had slowly filled with river silt, as they only pumped out the water. The first floor they shoveled out and sprayed down with fire hoses. All the wallpaper had long peeled off, leaving stained plaster behind. They left the windows open all summer to dry out the wood. When Tinker and Oil Can rode their bikes through the large, empty first-floor rooms, or played street hockey using the old fireplaces as goals, they would kick up clouds of fine dust. Come fall, they would loot empty buildings for window glass and patch the plaster anywhere the winter winds would be able to blow through. Her grandfather had converted the second floor to the kitchen, workshop, and classroom. The third floor contained the library, away from the lower-level floods and the fourth story's dripping roof. They slept on the fourth floor, drips and all, as it was the safest place in case of flash flood. Oil Can moved out the winter of his 16th birthday to Mount Washington, claiming he wasn't going to spend another spring worrying if the river would wash into their bedrooms. When their grandfather died the next year, Oil Can offered to take Tinker in with him. Nothing could make him move back to the river's edge, nor would he let her stay at the hotel alone when she refused his offer. Showing surprising strength of character, he insisted she find someplace above the floodplain. Tinker had scoured the hill around the scrapyard. After the high ceilings, long halls, and sprawling first floor of the hotel, everywhere else had seemed small and cramped. Finally, she'd found a large loft. The living room was 30 by 60, and the one bedroom was a roomy 14 by 20. Now she went up the steps to her loft wearily, unlocked the door, mumbled her security code to her security system, and slammed the door behind her. She was at the fridge, opening the door to get a cold beer, before she realized her security system hadn't acknowledged her. She jerked around, hands still on the refrigerator door handle, and found she wasn't alone. A woman, tall, leggy, with dark spiky hair and armed with a stocky handgun leveled at her, drifted out of the shadows to block the front door. Durak? A man appeared at the bedroom door. He quirked up one eyebrow. Well, what do we have here? She let herself in and gave a security code, the woman said. Her taste in clothing ran to black and very tight-fitting. If she had any weapons other than the handgun, they were small or strapped to her back. Tinker couldn't tell how lethal the handgun was. It seemed too large to be loaded with something as mundane as bullets. Who are you? Tinker asked, and was somewhat pleased she didn't sound as scared and angry as she was. When was her life going to go back to normal? What are you doing here? 
We're going to ask the questions, the man said. We're looking for Alexander Graham Bell. He goes by the name of Tinker. This is his residence. He? Hell, they were confused. They had her name right, but certainly not her sex. Not that she was about to point out the error in their thinking. And I take it that he's not here. No, Durek said, closing the distance between them. What's your name? Let me see some ID. Tinker backed away. Look, I don't want any trouble. My name is Lane. My ID was stolen two days ago by some big goons. I've had a really shitty week, and I haven't seen Tinker for days. Skippy, activate emergency system. We turn the AI off. He checked his forward motion. Cooperate with us and you're not going to get hurt. You break into my house, wave guns at me, and expect me to turn over my boyfriend? It was weird talking like this, keeping pronouns straight. It was like a math problem, substituting in values. You live here with him? Durek asked. Yeah? The woman made a disgusted noise. How long have you two been together? What would the right answer be? A few weeks or months? It didn't seem long enough. Three years? Durek and the woman exchanged dark looks. Perhaps three years was too much. I hate this assignment more and more, the woman muttered. Patience, Briggs. It's a whole new world. Doesn't mean I have to like it. And while they murmured together, Tinker said lowly, Tripwire. Briggs jerked her head up and then swore. She's activated a backup defense system. Durrick caught Tinker under the arm and hustled her out of the house. Out on the street, he pushed her up against the wall. Not as hard as he could, but still she found herself dangling a foot from the ground. Look, you little twit. We've been down to your boyfriend's scrapyard, and there's blood everywhere. We've been to Mercy. We checked with all the Earth-based hospitals. He wasn't checked in at any of them. If your boyfriend is still alive, he's running on borrowed time. If someone finds him before we do, he'll end up roadkill just like his father did. Do you understand? She didn't understand any of that, but she wanted him to let go of her, so she nodded. Now, where is Tinker? Oil cans? No, he probably wasn't home. Lane's? No, keep her out of this, whatever it was. Nathan's? He was most likely on duty. She thought of a dozen more places and rejected them. Tinker needed some place with lots of people where, if these folks really turned out to be American agents, the U.S. government carried little weight. He's at a hospice just beyond the rim. What's he doing there? Wargs attacked the scrapyard at shutdown. They downed a high-ranking elf. Tinker took him out to the hospice after startup. That was two days ago. Tinker was hurt. One of the wargs messed him up and the wound got infected. Durek swore and took hold of her. Come on, I'm not letting you out of my sight until I have your boyfriend under my thumb. Tinker hunted for signs of squad cars responding to the tripwire distress call, but the police weren't showing. Pittsburgh police were spread too thin. Their car was tucked out of sight, half a block down. A sleek late model sedan, it looked out of place in Pittsburgh, and especially in Tinker's neighborhood. It didn't need the DC plates to identify it as out of town. Briggs unlocked the car with a remote. Durek opened the back passenger door, but held Tinker in check. Searcher. 
Briggs moved Tinker so her hands were on the car roof and her legs were slightly spread. The woman combed fingers through Tinker's short, dark hair. The search went down the back of Tinker's neck, up under her shirt and into her bra. Durek averted his gaze. Briggs's hands stayed impassive, but Tinker clenched her hands into fists on the car roof until her knuckles showed white as the search moved to her groin. You have no right to do this. Tinker blinked to keep tears out of her eyes. I haven't done anything. Sorry, kid. Them's the brakes. Durek actually sounded like he was sorry. Finally, Briggs moved down to the less personal territory of Tinker's pants pockets. There, the search slowed to a crawl. Tinker's pants had a half dozen pockets, and all of them held something. After the first handful, Briggs dumped the items onto the floor of the back seat. Please don't lose the nuts and bolts, Tinker said. They're irreplaceable. The pockets empty and double-checked. Briggs stepped away from Tinker. If she kicks you with those boots, you're going to know it. Take them off, Dirk ordered Tinker. Briggs sorted through the pile on the car floor, confiscating dangerous items. Three different-sized screwdrivers, a pocket acetylene torch, and her Swiss Army knife. They went with her boots into the trunk. Can I have the rest of my stuff back? Tinker asked, nearly whispering in an effort to keep from showing how much she wanted her possessions. Just get in. You can pick it up while we drive. Tinker scrambled into the back seat. There was no lock switch, door handle, or comm device. Durek slid into the passenger seat, letting Briggs drive. Where's the hospice? You cut through downtown and go up past where the Hill District used to be. Tinker stuffed away her things. Where? Center Avenue out of town, corner of Old Center and Old Penn. New roads named after old roads that don't exist anymore. He programmed it into the nav system. It must have been tied to one of the few government satellites because it actually seemed to be working. Distantly, a police siren rose, but they were already turning off her street. Tinker slumped back in the seat. If the police arrived at her place now, she wouldn't be there to be rescued. Who are you two, anyhow? She contented herself with kicking the back of the front seat. I'm Korg Durek. My associate is Hannah Briggs. We're with NSA. What's that? National Security Agency. It just didn't make sense. What had she done to bring these guys down on her? What do you want with Tinker? He's never been in the United States. Durek made a negation sound. He was born in the United States, someplace. He would have been five when the gate first moved Pittsburgh to Elfholm. Oh, this made sense why they didn't suspect her of being Alexander Bell. They were looking for someone nearly ten years older than her. They hadn't considered that Tinker was anything but a naturally inseminated child. Add in her male name, and they were obviously completely lost. Still, that didn't explain why they were looking. We want to protect Tinker, Hannah Briggs said. He's in a lot of danger. So you keep on saying. It was a good line to have someone betray a loved one. Why would anyone want to hurt Tinker? He runs a scrapyard. He keeps his nose clean. He's a good guy. Briggs gave a flat laugh and murmured, Yeah, right. Durek gave Briggs a hard look. He's an extremely intelligent young man who apparently understands the working of the phase gate and in all possibility could build one. 
Understood it, yes. Build one? She'd never considered doing that, mostly because the parts were too exotic to find as scrap in Pittsburgh. So? Durek threw her a surprised look. Do you have any idea how rare that is? Apparently not. People like that can be counted on one finger. No one has been able to develop a hyperphase device since Leonardo Dufay's death. The Chinese figured out how to build it off the designs they stole, but they can't change it or improve it. If they could, we wouldn't have this little weirdness called Pittsburgh. Then up pops Tinker, son of the Gates inventor, trained by the same man, and one assumes privy to any family secrets. Yeah, energy equals mass times constant squared. Durek turned in his seat now to consider her in a silent study. They crossed the heavy McKees Rocks Bridge, all stone and steel, hopping parts of the river bank before crossing the Ohio River proper, still choked with barges. It would be a week before river traffic returned to normal. The roads, though, were clear, and minutes later they were crossing the Allegheny River on the Fort Duquesne Bridge. Tinker applied to Carnegie Mellon University last shutdown. It took them a while to put all the pieces together and notify NSA. We've blacked it out, except letting them issue an acceptance letter. Hopefully no one else puts the pieces together either. What pieces? That Alexander Bell listed Leonardo Dufay as his father, and that according to the testing AI, he understood all the questions, even though he answered them wrong. That includes the filter questions on hyperphase that no one is supposed to be able to answer. Shit. She hadn't considered that they would have an AI filtering the placement testing. Lane had explained that the test was just to see what courses she would need to attend. You can test out of the basics and only take advanced courses. By tracking eye movement, keystrokes, length of time per question, and correct answers changed to wrong ones, a good AI would easily have determined that she had comprehended all the questions and just chose to get them wrong. What an idiot. If he meant to confuse people, he succeeded. Why did Tinker bother to apply to Carnegie Mellon University? He only applied to humor a friend. He doesn't want to leave Pittsburgh, so he tried to keep them from accepting him. Durek made a slight noise of discovery. Why doesn't he want to leave? Tinker snorted. Durek had said it with faint disbelief that anyone would want to stay. Earth has nothing that interests Tinker. Durek's eyes narrowed, and he exchanged glances with Briggs. What about you? Me? Tinker squeaked. Oh, please, don't pay any attention to little old me. Would you like to go to Earth? Tinker laughed. No. We can set you up at a nice house. All new furniture, cleaning robots, two new cars. Basically replace everything you might lose in a move. You could go to school if you wanted. Earth has malls, the net, cable television, first-class restaurants, and Disney World. Disney World? I'm supposed to give up my family and friends and everything I know for Disney World? Offer her candy and ice cream, Hannah murmured. At her age, that might still work. They were coming up to the rim. There were long-standing jokes about the slowness it took to move across the border, one joke was that the border was an event horizon of a black hole, something that you could spend a lifetime trying to reach. Another sarcastic prod was that elfin magic made any event last longer than a human lifetime, 
which was why they'd bioengineered themselves to be immortal. Hannah, apparently feeling the need for privacy, slid up the sound barrier behind the front seat. Tinker took out the digital marker that Maynard had given her from the smuggler's loot and traced a quick eavesdropping spell on the back of the seat. So chances are Tinker isn't going to want to come with us. That's a possibility, Durek said. I say that if we don't find the boyfriend at this hospice, we tuck the girl away for safekeeping. Derek, sometimes you scare me. The Pittsburghers are still American citizens. Whose willingness to live on a foreign planet makes their loyalty to the United States suspect. Don't feed me that line. You don't give a shit about that. Yes, but it looks good on a report when you bend the hell out of the rules. Making the girl disappear would do more than bend rules. Protective custody. If we've thought to use her to get to Tinker, then she's fair game to anyone looking for him. Do you want the kid in the middle of this? You want to deal with that again? I sure as hell don't. It isn't all black and white. There's a lot of gray out there, Durek. It's not the black, white, or gray that I'm worrying about. It's the blood red. I say if Tinker is out here, we stick them both away until next shutdown and then smuggle them out to the States. We should make sure they actually like one another first. She might be lying about their relationship. More than you can guess. Tinker watched as the second car in front of them got waved through. Tinker, or Tinker's lover, she was slated to disappear after the hospice search, which meant she had to get away from them at the hospice. She mostly needed to get out of the car. She considered the tactics she could try, from asking to go pee to stating that she wanted to stay in the car. Just because they'd made the one mistake on her identity didn't mean they were truly stupid. Her real name was misleading, and she didn't remember the application asking for gender or age. She considered the hazards of being locked in the car in case her ploy failed. Could she get out? Unlikely. Trying the reverse psychology ploy of refusing to leave the car was too risky. Might as well start working on the bathroom ploy. She tapped on the divider. That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week in the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>